Welcome to Faith Reformed Baptist Church once again. It's good to see you all here. Before we begin, I'd like to ask the Lord's assistance. So let's bow our heads and lift our hearts up to God. Our most holy Father, we thank you for the kindness and grace that you have given to us. You've abounded to us in such marvelous ways. And these have all been done through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lord Jesus, we thank you for giving yourself for us, for acting as our mediator. We want to thank you for dying for our sins. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would touch us tonight. Open our ears and open our mouths. May the things be said tonight be of glory to Christ. May you be lifted up. May the truth of the gospel be made clear. We ask that you do this for all your churches throughout the world. May sinners be saved, may Christ be glorified, and we ask, Lord, that you would be among your people now. We pray these things in our Lord's name. Amen. Amen. This is Psalm uh, 15, if you want to find it in your scriptures. Uh, the scriptures that I'll be using tonight have been taken from the ESV, the English Standard Version. And uh, I have entitled it, Who Shall Dwell on Your Holy Hill? And it is a very short psalm. I like to give uh, thanks already. I mean, right up front to uh, to one particular commentator, and I've read several commentators upon this. But but this one man, James uh, Boyce, James Montgomery Boyce, had a very good handle on this, and I've used uh, several of his ideas in putting this together. It's a very short poem, and this is how he approached it. Um, the poetry that's written by men today, especially in the English language, we, we recognize that there is meter, there is uh, a lot of rhyming going on, and sometimes it has a certain form to it, sometimes they're sonnets, sometimes they're, they have special names, there's a lot of poetry going on. There's something unique about Hebrew poetry, though. In Hebrew poetry, it never rhymes. They never have a certain meter to it. As a matter of fact, Hebrew poetry usually has the idea of a parallelism. A parallelism where we have one idea expressed, and then it's expressed over again immediately in a different way. Sometimes it's expressed positively, and then in contrast it's expressed negatively. And so as we go through this psalm, you'll see that this is indeed a very good poem, and it's expressed with the idea that there is a question at the beginning, and the question even in itself has a parallelism. O Lord, who shall dwell in your tent? And then it's asked right again, who shall dwell in your holy hill? As you can see, it's not identical, but it's very much the same. And so there is a, uh, there is a form to it that the verses themselves break up. And so what I've done is I've taken off the verses. And uh, I've done what James Boyce did in his book, and that is when you put it together in these parallelisms, it just looks a little bit differently, but it has this great context within it. So I'm going to give you the doctrine that I have seen in this particular poem or the psalm. This could be very easily put to music, something that's beautiful, something that expresses a very good idea. But the doctrine I want us to bring home tonight is this. Abraham was described as a friend of God, and we should also strive with everything within us to make God our friend. 
And so to do so requires a holy character. We need to be holy to be a guest in the tent of God. We need to be holy to have the ability to dwell on his holy hill. And this holiness is described throughout these verses. And so let's go on from there. The question that's asked from the very beginning is this. What is the character of the man whom God approves? Or how must we live to enjoy the fullness of fellowship with God? We can have our own private devotions and we can have our time in which we raise our thoughts and our heart to God. And it's like saying, let me go to my friend's home. Let me go to my friend's house. And there I want to enjoy his company. What do we have to be like to sit down and be a friend with God? Or when it comes to, now it's time to find my God and worship him with my fellow believers. What do I have to be? What type of person must I be to go and say, this is a man after my own heart. He is now in my courts and he is allowed to worship me. This is what God would be saying. And so when it comes to that type of question and the type of of words that are being used, David, and this is a psalm of David, is going to describe, this is the man that can do that. Now, I want you to keep something in the back of your mind as we do this. It's going to be a study in Christian character, his speech, his conduct, his values, his integrity, and the use of his money. And we need to apply these type of descriptions to us. Because David is going to say, who is going to dwell in the holy hill of God? Who is going to be in the tent where God is, which is like the tabernacle, by the way. That's where his presence is, the presence of God in the tabernacle. He must be this type of person. Now, to do that, we're going to compare, and I want you to do this while I'm teaching. I want everything that's compared to what you should be like Think about, is that what the Lord Jesus is? Because we're going to find as we go through this psalm, it'll require things that we're not like. And sometimes it's difficult for us to be like that. But there is someone who is like that. And at the very end, the application will be this. It'll just, I won't, be, I won't surprise you. The application will be this. We need to put on Christ. And as we put on Christ, we will become a man after God's own heart. And we will be like the others in the Old Testament, or like the ones listed in Hebrews chapter 11, where they say, look at these. These have stopped the mouths of lions. These have done mighty works of, of, of God. And yet these were the ones who have been counted as God's friend. It is one thing to be, and I, well, I'm gonna, let me put it this way. Friends are very special. It's good to have a friend, but there's a friend that's going to be above all. He'll stick closer than a brother. He will be the one that will always be there. You'll find that no matter how good a friend is, there will come a time when you'll wonder about that friend. But you should never have to wonder about God. Never. And so as we work our way through this, you may want to make note of this. We'll be looking at the character, the speech, the conduct, 
the values, the integrity, and the use of money of those that David says, this is the man that's going to be able to sit in the tent of God. This is the man who will be able to go into the holy hill of God. So let's go to uh, the scriptures themselves, and we'll start with the observations in verse number one. We'll, we'll take a look at the first, what I'll call the first parallelism. And so the first parallelism is the question itself. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent, or who shall dwell on your holy hill? Now, in 1 Samuel chapter 13 uh, and verse 14, we read how Saul has been rejected. And Samuel is being instructed by God to say, I want you to find someone after mine own heart. And that is mentioned again in Acts chapter 13 when it, it is described that, Who is this David? Did the Lord say unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, and so on? And then he comes down and said, He was a man after God's own heart. And this is the type of man we're looking for. David was a man that obeyed God's law. He loved God's law. He had a passion for it. He would read it, and he would see the beauty of it. His heart was attached to it. It was something that he could say, I want this. I have a great need. I just have a passion for this. And this is exactly what is satisfying to me. And so even though David fell into sin, as we all know, as we all do all the time, it was always that David always reverted back to his passion for God that brought him to repentance, that sought that he should be forgiven by God. This is what he sought after. So David had a great love for God. He had a, a passion for his glory. And this is the type of man we're looking at. This is the type of person that answers the question, who shall sojourn in his tent? No doubt David was seeking to be God's friend. And this is what we need to do. We need to be like Abraham. And I know there is this, I, and I don't want to... Uh, shall we say, in, in the military I was taught enlisted men and officers, you should not have undue familiarity. You don't see an officer in the hallway and say, hey Jack, you know, sorry Jack, you know, but it, it's, it's like this, you should have a reverence, not a reverence, but a respect. You come to attention if you need to, you give them a smart salute, and that's what you do to, an, to a superior, to a superior officer. But we don't want to degrade that position of God. When we talk about the Lord, many times people say, I love Jesus, and there's nothing wrong with that. But somehow I feel better with saying, I love the Lord Jesus. And I love, you know, and, and I, used, I, I would like to use his title, and that's just me. But we should not refer to God as my buddy. And then, you know, and I'm not trying to give you rules, okay? I'm not saying, don't say this and do this and so on. But I'm trying to get you the feel of how God is our friend, but he is not your sidekick. He's your God, but he's your friend. He's your friend. But don't forget, your friend is the creator of all things and your savior. And that we should not have this undue disrespect of saying, oh, yeah, yeah, we hang out. God and I hang out. I don't want that type of atmosphere. I don't want to have that within my heart. But I do want to be able to say, God is my friend. He has done things to me that a friend would do to me. 
He has been my friend, and I want to be his friend. And it's said of Abraham, he was his friend. So when it comes to answering the question, what does it really mean to sojourn in the Lord's tent? And of course, this probably refers to the tabernacle. But when I think of Abraham, when he came and he saw these men coming, and uh, somehow, somehow he knew that they were more than just men, and he, he brought them too close, he gave them food to eat, he treated them like special guests, and yet he knew. And it's like God came to him, came to his tent, and they said, should we hide this from our friend? Should we hide this from Abraham? And then they communed. And it, it, it can be seen how Abraham was, was reverent, but also he wanted to have time of fellowship, of serving him, of providing for him, just like Mary and Martha would provide for their guests. We should want to have that type of service to God where we can serve him from what we can do. And so we need to seek this type of friendship, not undue familiarity, but real friendship with God. And sometimes I would like to almost like to move it into an area of what has been called in my childhood hero worship. You know, everyone has their little heroes that they worship. Maybe it's baseball, maybe it's some TV thing or this and that. But there is also the idea that we should have an admiration of God, an admiration that says, one day I want to be like him. You know, like, one day I would like to play baseball like so-so-and-so or, or do this or do that. In a greater sense, a Christian has a goal that he sees in the scriptures, a God that is so good, so holy, so great, so magnificent, and his majestic uh, beauty is far above everything. And you just have to have something within your heart that says, if I could just be like my friend, if I could just be like the one who loves me, to be like God. This is what it means to sojourn in the temple or in the, in the tent of God. To be there and to see the face of Christ and say, if I could just be like him. And, and between friends, there is a certain respect. There's a certain level of trust. You trust your friends. Now, any human being knows that there's going to become a time in every person's life that they're going to break a trust. But there is one that has never never have put himself in a position where he said, well, can we trust him? Can we trust God? Oh, my goodness. God forbid that we should even entertain the thought. There should be this, this, this desire to love and to admire a reverence. Some people call it the fear of God. And, you know, and, it's, and, it's, and I've seen it taught in, in a in an unnatural way that we don't want to be afraid of God. God's our friend, not to be afraid of God. The fear of God is really a good thing. Now, at the beginning, it's natural to be afraid of the one who can not only kill the body, but throw the soul in hell. Of course you should fear him. There is a lot to be afraid of. But once you have met Christ and his beauty, where his grace is provided, where his mercy is offered, then the fear is more like, what can I do to never offend him? There is that fear, the fear of reverencing God, of wanting to be his servant. So friendship with the Almighty can be achieved if we put on Christ. That's a, that's a strange phrase, is it not? 
But that's how Paul puts it. The idea of putting on Christ, just like you, like you put on a robe. Well, we put on the robe of righteousness, do we not? Do we not say that because of, his, because of the atoning work of Christ, he has given us a righteousness that actually is like a robe that we put on, and then when the judge sees us, he sees the goodness and righteousness of Christ. And so would we not imitate him as a person, imitate his motives, imitate what his loves are, imitate what, he, what his hates are, everything about him, all his character, let us put on Christ. We can, we can reckon ourselves to be in him, receiving the benefits and the goodness that he's done for us, but also put him on us, that we may act like him. And not just that we're acting, but at least have our behavior be like Christ. Now, that's the question, what does it mean to sojourn in God's tent? So what does it mean to dwell on God's holy hill? To dwell in the presence of God on his holy hill. Who is worthy to be in the presence of the almighty God? The very presence of God in the tabernacle and in the temple was, was, was shown to them by building an ark of the covenant where cherubims are facing each other and their wingtips almost touch, with their eyes shielded down, looking down. And it, it looks down upon what's called the lid, which is the mercy seat. And so these holy beings have to look at mercy to even show us where we stand before God. If it were not for mercy, then we cannot even be in His presence. Holy angels, can they be in the presence of God? If God permits. And he does. They worship him. They, they glorify him. Now I ask you this. What about the sons of Adam? What about us? And make no mistake. When I say Adam, I mean man. And don't make me explain that. Alright? We're talking about us. All the sons of Adam. We cannot be in the presence or dwell in his holy hell without being in Christ. Amen. Now, if we're in Christ, we should also put on Christ because David gets into the idea that, I'll tell you what, the man that can dwell on his holy hill or dwell in his tent, he's the one that looks like that and does this and does this and does that. What does that mean that all you have to do is act like one? To look like one? Well, the scriptures tell us plainly. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And from true faith, he acts. But this is not what this psalm is about, about what this poem is telling us. He says, this is what they look like. This is what they do. So let's go to the first parallelism here. And um, it says, the answer to the question, who shall dwell and who shall be? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right. Do you see the, the two parallel things? He who walks blamelessly and on the other hand, he and, uh, and does what is right. Now, I understand that the original language has the idea that both of these are rather positive. But when you put it into English, it comes off as this. Walking blamelessly is a little bit like this. He doesn't do this, and he doesn't do that, and he's not blamed for anything. No one can talk about this person as to what he should have done or doesn't do. And that's kind of a negative view of how to say he's a good guy. Oh, he's not bad. 
he is actually blameless. But to give this description a full view, like the other half of the nut or the other side of the coin, he is the guy that does what is right. Because make no mistake, holiness has to do with not only doing what is right, but also not doing what is wrong. There is that give and take. There is that positive and negative. It must be from the Christian's point of view, I tried to do everything, but have you tried enough to not do some things? Okay? And you say, well, I tried to, to eliminate all this from my life, but have you tried to do the right things? These things is what David is saying. Who is able to dwell in the holy hell? That guy right there, the guy that cannot be blamed, and the one that does the right thing. So for the sake of God's glory, we should not bring reproach upon God by our bad behavior. It is, it's a bad thing to say, oh, you hang out with that guy? Oh, you're guilty by, by association. Oh, is that one of God's people? He does this and that. And he's reproaching me. I mean, he's got a bad reputation. Why should our God put up with that type of friend? He shouldn't, and he doesn't. And therefore, we need to have our character that's reflective of holiness. We need to have our character goal-driven. It needs to have a goal to achieve. And the goal is this. Don't dishonor our God. Don't embarrass him in front of the world. You need to live with the goal in mind to bring glory to him. So that others can say, that's the guy that dwells in the tent of the Almighty. That's the person that goes to the holy hill. You can tell. Christians should be known and have a reputation for their honesty. They say, yeah, that guy, I know him. He's honest as the day is long. He's a Christian. They should be known for their compassion. Some people, just, they just can't. He's like, I don't know about that guy, but, you know, don't expect mercy from him. We need to be aware that the world is looking and that we need to be known for compassion. If anybody knows about justice, it should be a Christian. Justice. What is right? What is proper? What is beauty when it comes to knowing what is right and wrong? The beauty of what is right. A man that is to be associated with being a friend of God should be a man that's known for his gratitude. You know, there's nothing more annoying than in ungrateful children. You know, now I call, I, I say children because they're the ones that are so obvious. But you know, there is something worse than that. <laughs> ungrateful adults. Because they have not learned. Gratitude is a beautiful thing in the eyes of God. It is a beautiful thing to be associated that the fruit of the spirit of the Christian produces a gratitude for God, for their forgiveness. They should be a forgiving people. When people sin against you, some people just cannot stir up the strength to forgive others. What type of man dwells in the tent of God? What type of person can be, say, can be said about, that man dwells on the hill of the holy and he is always ready to forgive. But a man that cannot forgive, why would they think that you're a friend of God? God has moved mountains, heaven and earth to forgive you. He has done all these things. And will we not want to be like the God who saved us? Can we not have the same compassion on others that he's had on us? Now the second parallelism is this. 
This is the man that's able to sit in the hill of the holy earth, to stand there or to dwell there, and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue. Now, do you see the parallelism there? It says it twice, but it's negative and it's positive. He speaks truth in his heart and does not slander with his tongue. One is positive, one is negative. Hopefully, hopefully when he speaks the truth in his heart, he's not slandering, right? That's the idea. It's, it's a given. It's something that we must understand. So, so that we can see, when a person speaks, speaking is very important for the Christian. All the words that come out of his mouth, they kind of tell you what they are. They're the signposts. They're everything about them. A Christian must have wholesome communications. He must have wholesome communications. I'd like to read Luke chapter 6.45 to you. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of the evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Now, you may say to yourself, well, I never heard of anything about an evil treasure. Why would anyone have a treasure of evil? Look, in this world, sometimes those who live in sin as though it's normal will have fun and will always enjoy the company of others who enjoy the same sin. They even promote it. They even, uh, you know, uh, they, they, they joke, joke about it with each other. They become friends about it. But we as Christians, we need to have a treasure within us, a true treasure that can be said, out of this treasure, it'll just push its way out, find its way out into the open, find its way into the ears of others. And it must be good. It must be a heart that is enthralled and made happy with seeing the face of God, the beauty of Christ. Negatively, he does not slander. Slander is when someone defames someone else with an evil report. And you may say within yourself, well, what if it's true? Well, that's another story. Because you don't have to be happy about spreading bad news, even if it's true. You don't have to take the advantage of saying, boy, I got a juicy one now, and it's true. It's going to be so much fun to spread this around. We are not gossips, and we, are not be, we should not be joyful in harming others, even with the truth. Let alone it be slander that we should enjoy hurting others with words that we know are not true, but hoping they are. Or perhaps it's true, I wouldn't put it past that person. Those type of words. That is not the kind of person who sits in the tent of the Almighty and dwells in the, in, in the, in the holy hill of God. They do not live a life that enjoys slander. There's a difference between someone warning another person who is genuinely dangerous. We should do that. But we don't have to be a, a carrier of tales. We don't have to be that kind of person. To actually harm someone out of malice and to damage them with a falsehood is a horrible sin, a terrible sin. This person cannot be a close friend of God because God is not like that. He is not like that. It would be difficult for a person 
who loves to harm others with their tongue to be in the worship of God and genuinely worship in the Holy Spirit. The third parallelism. And does no evil to his maker, nor takes up the reproach against his friend. Now, it works like this. The first parallelism talked about his character. The second one, where he speaks of the truth in his heart, talks about his speech. This one, the one that says he does no evil to his neighbor, and, and, and nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, talks about just his conduct in general. And so he has a godly character. He has a mouth that speaks good things. And then his behavior can be recognized as a real Christian. The actions of a Christian should be like Christ. It should be like Christ. He should do no harm or malice to anyone. He will not take up a reproach of anyone against anyone. He does not do evil to his neighbor. The actions here are only mentioned, and notice that it doesn't say, and he doesn't harbor that in his heart. No, we're just looking at the action. We're just looking at what he does. If the outward appearance can be said, well, he never does that, then we can say this. He is not one that is skilled in flattery, is he? Because someone that does not do that will not, you know, will not become skilled in, shall we say, the art of war of flattery. Something that you would use against a neighbor to make him think things that are not true for your own gain. So this, of course, is speaking about a hypocrite. And a hypocrite is someone that has duplicity within their hearts. They try to flatter and they try to live and create falsehoods, but we cannot see within a person's heart, do we not? We can only see what they do. And a Christian should not make it so difficult for the world to know that what he does is good things. What he, you know, what, that they should do and perform holy things. The conduct of a Christian will generally and almost always reflect what is on the inside. So, we shall be judged by our deeds. That's what the scripture tells us. And people say, I didn't know we were going to be judged by our works. Well, of course, we're going to be judged by our deeds. And why? Because out of the heart proceeds all the things that we say. Out of the love of Christ performs, you know, comes out all of our actions. Now, I'm not saying that we're going to be perfect. Christ is going to save us from our sins. He's going to save us from our evil desires. And we can learn to put on Christ and learn to mortify sin. But if your everyday actions only do evil things, you've got a real problem. You have not only lied, you know, you're, you're looking like someone that doesn't love Christ, you have probably lied to yourself. Let's go to the next parallelism, number four. The one that says this, in whose eyes are a vile person is despised, and who honors those who fear the Lord. And this has to do with values. You see, what this parallelism is saying is that when a, when a true Christian sees an evil person, they say to themselves, well, that's an evil person. And when they see someone that is a good person, or those who fear God, those who honor God, they say, there's a, there's a good person. Or shall we say, I know, we, you know somebody always going to say, well, there's none but good God. But they say, there's a person that fears the Lord. That's exactly how it puts it, who fears the Lord. We need to be able to say that. Because 
having the right values is important. When a Christian does not have the right values, he will become something that he's not expecting to become. He's going to become what his values are. He will do the things that he desires in his heart, and he will value, he will become like what he values. Now, I'm getting at something here where uh, it used to be once upon a time we had hero worship in this country where a lot of people would say in his heart, well, I really like that guy. Or some sports person would say, well, they did something wrong, and so now he doesn't sell tennis shoes anymore because he's a bad example to the young people. We have gotten to the point in our country where it doesn't matter what anyone does. As a matter of fact, sometimes they're even honored for the sin that they do. And this is an awful thing. It's an awful thing that we have destroyed the very essence of what it means to have good values. We need to have good values. When we say, I have a goal in life, I want to achieve that goal, well, then you're really expressing what your value is. The value that a Christian needs to have is to live to the glory of God. That is a good value to have. And when you have that good value, you work to achieve that goal. And once you do that, you'll discover what it's like to say, that is good, and that is bad. And when that person does good things, I like that, and I like that person, and I like what he's doing. And this person who does evil things, I don't like what he's doing, and he's evil. You have to call what it is what it is. And we have, we're at the point in our society where we're not allowed to do that anymore. We are being called out to call evil good and good evil. And we're being challenged on that. But I'd say have the proper goals. We need to have the right heroes. Now, Hebrews chapter 11 has a lot of good heroes for us to emulate. But, of course, the most important hero is the one who never sinned, is the one who came to us, and we are commanded to put him on. So even though we have some good values, we have some good heroes, the world will not allow that to happen in the life of people without Christ. So, we who have walked in the Spirit of the Lord have done so because we prize the virtues of God. Those have been our goals. Those have been our values. And what we're looking at now is now eventually going to get into the area of what are these values that we treasure so much. Well, Paul talks about them and he calls them the fruit of the Spirit. When we walk by faith, we nurture the fruits of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so in Galatians chapter 5, Paul actually lists them. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. Now these things just don't happen overnight. They're not magic. We need to understand and to truly treasure what is holy and what is good. We need to have in our own minds and say, my goal is to be like Christ, to have Christ. You know, where, where Paul would say, oh, to, to win Christ, to have this, to obtain the very essence of who Christ is in me. I want to be like my Savior. These things will then become achievable goals in your life. They, to have the proper heroes, to have the proper goals, to have the proper values, these are the men that David says 
That's the kind of man that'll sit in the tent with God and be his friend. That's the kind of man that'll approach God and worship him the way he needs and should be worshiped. So we do not treasure the right things in the world, but God tells us what to treasure. Remember the parable. The man found a treasure in a field, sold everything he had to get it. And should we not sell everything in this world and discard every worldly pleasure in order to achieve Christ, in order to have him in our hearts? And I don't mean like, oh, please come into my heart. It's not a magic you know, potion. It's not a magic uh, incantation. But the idea that we put on Christ, that we imitate him, we become like him. His values must become our values. The next parallelism. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Now this may be confusing to some, but this describes the integrity of a person. The integrity of a person. It's important that a Christian have integrity. In the, uh, in the IT business, we talk a lot about integrity. Integrity has to do with data or databases or information that has not been corrupted or changed in any way. So when we receive a piece of data, we make sure that it remains as it is. The integrity is intact. Many times uh, the word is used to describe things like a, like a bottle that is not broken. Well, what's the integrity of the bottle? It's pristine, there's no cracks, there's no holes, everything about it works. Integrity in this context has to do with holiness that does not have breaks and holes in it. It is completely intact. And when it says here, the description, that he who swears to his own hurt, it works a little bit like this. A Christian, when his word is given, it should be his bond. And when he swears or makes an oath, he should keep it. He should keep it. He needs to be a person who values the truth to the point that even if he makes a commitment and then circumstances change and then he starts to suffer from that commitment, he says, I will honor my word and keep my commitment even if I'm at a disadvantage. This is what my word demands. This is what our integrity demands. Many times we, we get in situations and someone says, well, I said I would do that. But things are different now and I'm not going to do that because it hurts me. No, we should not be like that. We need to keep our word. We need to have integrity. We need to not be changed by these circumstances, but we need to be that person that when we say yes, we mean yes. When we say no, that's exactly what we mean. Now there will be circumstances in which you say, oh man, I wish I hadn't done that, but still retain your integrity. A Christian should be loyal to their God and to his law. Do not, I say that, I've said this many times, you know, I think you probably know what I'm going to say. Don't make me choose between you and God. You're going to lose. And that's exactly, because people say, loyalty, are you loyal to me? I'm loyal to you as a friend if you are loyal to God, because that's where my first loyalty lies. And it would be to my hurt and to your hurt if I chose you over God. We need to be integrity, people of integrity to God first. But always be truthful. Always value the truth. 
The next parallelism. Who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. Now, I especially enjoyed what James Boyce said about this because the scriptures do teach things in the Old Testament law concerning the use of interest and loaning money. And uh, many times, uh, even to this day, the Roman Catholic Church is very strong on usury. It's, you know, they don't, they don't believe that it's really a very good thing to do. But I think James Boyce had a very good take on this. It's not as though the scriptures teach that it's against the law of God to charge people interest. The spirit of the law does this. It says to us, do not take advantage of the poor. Do not take advantage of the poor. Now, the last time this was really brought up in Scripture was with uh, someone came to Nehemiah and said, we have come to build the wall and we have our fields here. And the ones that are living here that are rich, they have given us money to pay our taxes, but they take our land. And now we're poor and destitute. That is a form of usury that takes advantage of the poor. Do not allow yourselves to only use your money to the hurt of others. Because your ability to make money is a gift from God. You may say to yourself, I'm a pretty smart guy. I'm pretty good at this. I can make money. And that's all on me. No, it's not all on you. God gave you the ability to reason. God gave you the strength in your hands. He gives you the air in your lungs. Anything that you make is a gift from God. And therefore, use what you can make and use your money in a way that glorifies God and does not become a burden to the poor or to others. We cannot be that person that wants to enslave others. We cannot say, how would you like to borrow this? And then all of a sudden, you have a lien on that person's property. And you may say, oh, it's a win-win. If he doesn't pay, I get that. And if he does pay, well, I get this. But you should help a brother, not put him at a disadvantage. You should not increase your wealth if it purposely decreases the wealth of others. What you do with your money does express a lot of what's in your heart. Because money says a lot. Our church here, we don't even pass out an offering plate. But we have a box back there. If you want to show God your gratitude, then give a portion of what he has given to you freely. Now, we don't teach a lot about that on the, in this church. But it is, it is a fact that God loves a cheerful giver. And that the Old Testament has shadows and types that represent how Christians ought to be people that sacrifice, that give, that know that it is not only their giving of their wealth, or of substances, or of things, but also of themselves, their time, their love, their lives. We, there's nothing about us that we should not be serving God with. The next part of this parallelism, where it says, we do not put our money out for interest, is that he does not take a bribe, a bribe against the innocent. Now, a bribe is something that has a negative word to it, right? A bribe. I think we all have an idea and we have, this is maybe a little bit easy to understand. But this type of sin, this type of maneuvering financially, can have variations to it that can be difficult to detect. And many times the righteous are not even aware that a bribe is being taken or given or even recognized. We have to be aware 
that any perversion of justice is a moral corruption. And if you can receive gain by perverting what is right, you are in essence taking a bribe. Do not allow yourself, if God has given you the responsibility to make decisions that, that can either make something happen or prevent something from happening, granting authority or, or denying authority, or whatever the case may be. And if you're in that position, then take it seriously and serve justice. Serve what is right. Do the good and right thing. Do the just thing. Do not allow yourself to benefit by just simply doing what is wrong. If you do that, you're not going to be comfortable in the presence of the Holy Spirit. You cannot find yourself in the worship of God's people by, by saying, Oh, I make a lot of money doing this. It's a good thing I'm a judge. I'm a good thing I'm sitting on the city council. It's a good thing I'm in charge of all the paper at work. You know, because if you want paper, you got to bring me donuts. And that's, that's the end of the story. You know, there's many things that you can, that this can go into a person's life and discolor it. And you can give dishonor to God in that way. So the last part of this, you know, or the conclusion of it, is one single line. He who does these things shall never be moved. A person that finds themselves in the tent of the Almighty, in the tabernacle, in the place of His presence, and finds that He has a friend in Christ, Jesus, what a friend for sinners. You'll find that when He is like this person, He cannot be moved out of there. He is, he is in a place of safety. He is on a rock. He's been fastened by, by, by the nails of virtue, by, by the tent pegs of veracity, by what is true. A person shall never be moved out of his sanctuary if they're like this. They were established on solid ground. They've been made in the heart a character like Christ. Now I have one simple application, and I've tried throughout my whole message to stress it. I've already said it maybe a dozen times. But when it comes to this, the practical application can be this. We must become like Christ. Who can sojourn in your tent? Who can dwell in your holy hill? This is the question. Only the pure in heart. The pure in heart. The character of our Lord Jesus Christ is impeccable. The character of our Lord Jesus Christ is something that he would never think or do anything inappropriate. Can, we, can you remember the speech of our Lord Jesus Christ? How one person said, No man ever spake like this man. Everything out of the heart out of the heart the mouth speaks and yet Christ is the truth the way and the life he is the truth no one ever spoke the way he spoke no falses had ever come out of the lips of Jesus Christ so when it comes to his character and his speech he is the one that is in the tent of God he is in the presence of God he is between the seraphims and the throne itself his conduct always doing those things that please his father he has said to the Pharisees, Who among you can find fault with me? Now you may say, Well, that sounds pretty prideful. Well, for us to say it, for us to say it, to him, it's just a matter of fact. It is just a matter of fact. He always does those things that please the Father. And when it comes to values, Christ treasures the beauty of holiness and justice and righteousness and mercy and grace. And he abhors the unjust and the evil. Those are his values. The values of his Father. Everything about him. 
his character, his speech, his conduct, his values, the integrity of Christ. Christ is completely pure in every way. Christ is without sin in every aspect. There's not a crack or fissure anywhere in his pureness. There is not a, any, any type of deception or any type of imperfection. And when it comes to the use of money, our Christ has never made wealth more important than his God. Mm -hmm. And I say his God, when he walked in his flesh, he had our God as his Father. And he never placed anything above his Father. Christ has only used what was given to him, even as the poor man on this earth. Everything he had was used to glorify his Father. He wouldn't even keep the purse that was in among his disciples. So, with this well established, we can see that there's only one who is truly worthy. Who among the sons of Adam has the character that is truly godly and truly above reproach? There's only one who has taken on the flesh of Adam. Who among the sons of Adam has speech that is always reflecting the heart of God, the Almighty? There's only one who has taken upon the flesh of Adam that's done that. And who among the sons of Adam can say that all that is good that can be done has been done, and there has never been anything evil ever done? Only one can do that. Christ is the only one. Who can sojourn in your tent? Let us become like Christ. Let us become like the only truly sinless one there is. In Christ, all repented, believing sinners can do this. Paul says it in Romans chapter 13, 14 very well. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify his desires. Imitate your Christ. Only Christ. Let us become like that man that can be in the tent of the Almighty in the hill that is holy. Mm -hmm. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you that your word is like a light to our path. We want to thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ not only died for our sins, but he was our great example. We can be like him if we love him, if we treasure him. And so, Father, we thank you that you have told us this. We thank you that you have placed within the word the very words that say he is the image of the invisible God. And we may see Christ in our hearts and minds, knowing who he is. And so, Lord, make us like our Christ. Help us to imitate him. Help us to be like him. Saving us from our sins, we thank you that we have been justified. But now we plead, now we plead that we be made like him in heart and soul. We pray these things in our Lord's name. Amen.